BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of the new podcast of the Juliana Forlano Show. Thank you so much to the Political Voices Network for producing this. I hope you enjoy this program. If you are new to the show, if you are new to my work, if you're new to Political Voices, um, what you're going to get is a, a coverage of politics and current events with a little bit of wit, with a little bit of sarcasm, with a little bit of spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. We are all living through very tough times and I'm happy to be here with you to maybe cover it in a way that, that helps us, that helps us uh, live through it without making fun of the very important things that are going on. So if you're new to me, if you're new to my work, welcome. If you uh, know me from other places like WBAI or the old Juliana Forlano Show podcast or ACT TV or Progressive Voices, some of the other places that I have been, welcome back. I am very happy to have you here. I'm very happy to have this platform back on the show today. We're going to start with my favorite segment, The Headlines, and then we're moving on to a deep dive into a story about why people in power don't believe that white supremacy is as big a threat to the United States as it actually is. Joining me to talk about that, author David Nyward, investigative journalist. Stay tuned. This is going to be a great show. In the headlines today, should Trump wear the classic orange jumpsuit to jail or should he wear the black and white stripes of yesteryear? All that and who else might be joining him in the prison lunch line coming up on the headlines. First up in the headlines, the Donald is going to jail. It's not official yet, but it sure seems likely. I covered the charges lined up against him in the D.C. case in yesterday's newscast. So check that out on the YouTube at Political Voices Network. Uh, But accountability is happening. And in that vein, the story gets better. In Michigan, 16 GOP fake electors have been charged with felonies, and they too might go to jail. It seems even Lindsey Graham might wind up behind bars for trying to help Trump overturn the 2020 election. They're going to have to open a new jail, the island of misfit authoritarians. Now, here's my question. Former Attorney General Bill Barr has been all over the talk circuit, all over the news, talking about how Trump will go to jail. And generally denouncing him as fit 
for presidency, unfit for presidency. Does he think that that is going to save him from going to jail himself? If Lyon can get Trump jail time, well, Barr, when are we going to hold him accountable for, let's see, all of his lies, like lying about the Mueller report, lying about lying about the Mueller report, burying a whistleblower complaint, lying to Congress about burying a whistleblower complaint, exonerating Trump and himself. But wait, there's more. But I'm not going to go through it because that would take all day. Just a question. When are we going to see Bill Barr getting his comeuppance? There's room on the island of misfit authoritarians for Bill. Maybe Bill and Lindsay can share a cell. The next story I thought was really important for the week and is finally getting the kind of coverage I think it has deserved for 30 years is that Al Gore was right. Climate chaos is upon us, and basically the entire world is experiencing the effects of catastrophic climate change. We're all basically living through or hearing about this week the reports of the U.S. South and Southwest's oppressive record-shattering heat and the East's unprecedented flooding events. Europe is sweltering and burning. Canada is still on fire, even though you can't smell it from where I am today. But you could last week. Most news outlets are focused on what's happening in Europe and the U.S. Canada gets a shout out because it's being on fire is affecting the U.S., but this stuff is basically going on all over. So I thought I'd, I'd mention a few other stories that are happening. The heat index in Iran topped 150 degrees. In India, 90% more rainfall than is considered normal during a monsoon season fell in Delhi, and floodwaters are so high they're lapping the walls of the Taj Mahal. South Korea has killer flooding and torrential downpours, and it's snowing in Africa. Even the fish are sweating. There's a massive marine heat wave going on. This is not good, people. The soaring heat has led some meteorologists to increase their warnings about this year's hurricane season. On Thursday, forecasters at Colorado State University said they now expect an above-average Atlantic hurricane season with around 18 tropical cyclones. This is a reversal from their earlier forecasts of a quieter-than-usual year that was already questioned by the researchers at the University of My Eyeballs. It's pretty obvious that Al Gore, who said the storms are going to intensify and get worse, and, you know, there will be more of them, has been pretty accurate. Has been pretty accurate. Uh, I report this story in this way, not to scare everybody into hopelessness, but it, it, my hope is that somehow, someday, we can see that we are all in this together. We're all in this together. We are all in this together. And hopefully we can literally all fix this together. I mean, the whole earth has warmed two degrees Fahrenheit since the 19th century. It's going to continue to grow hotter until humans basically halt all emissions from fossil fuels and stop deforestation. That is what the scientists say. Now, with that seemingly grim report, there were some underreported stories 
uh, on that front that they're pointing out, and I would like to point them. First one, solar and wind projects are on course to make up more than a third of global energy capacity by 2030, which to me sounds like a year very far off in the future, but it's actually only seven years from now. This is from a report by the trusted Rocky Mountain Institute, who also say that the growth that is being shown in the energy sector in this area is going to be able to take the ne- let us take the necessary steps to meet worldwide climate targets. Now, we could get into a long discussion about whether those targets are low, you know, low enough or fast enough, et cetera, but I think there is some good news baked into that particular cake. Right now, solar and wind make up only 12% of electricity worldwide, but that's expected to grow to a minimum of 33% in less than a decade. So hopefully some of us will still be alive and not burned up, shriveled up, droughted up, flooded up, or whatever else this earth is coming up with for us. Solar and wind are way less expensive than fossil fuels. They're eventually going to push out fossil fuel generated power. And that is why the fossil fuel industry is fighting so hard to extract and burn everything they can now because the writing is in fact on the wall. Countries, Europe especially, uh, they people just do not want to pay that much to heat their homes and they can't afford it. It's crashing economies and it will continue to do that as those prices soar. I'm not sure that the very powerful arms industry likes this turn of event any more than the fossil fuel industry because, hey, nobody ever went to war for windmills, okay? This is the future, unless, of course, the right-wingers take over and reopen the coal mines and drill baby drill or frack baby frack or whatever insanity that they're up to. In this particular area, there is a big difference between the parties on climate change, okay? When the parties... When, when the party of family values is in power, the party of quote unquote family values, when they're in power, they kill everything. When they're out of power, well, okay, nobody's perfect here. We have, uh, we, we need campaign finance reform so the corporations don't buy off all the politicians in every party. But let's just look in another country, in Brazil, another underreported kind of good news story for the week. From January to June of this this year, the first six months of the left-leaning president uh, Lula de Silva's term in Brazil, deforestation in Brazil's Amazon has fallen to third has fallen thirty three point six percent. There's new government satellite data that shows this. This has been reported in the Associated Press. Now, I remind you, that's only the first six months. That is going to continue to decline. Remember. Under former president, the right wing Bolsonaro, who was all for the merger of corporation and state. Let the money making cow raising people do whatever they want, chop the rainforest down. That rainforest was basically under his rule being chopped faster than raw fish at a hibachi restaurant. They were clear cutting it. These are the long, it's the lungs, it's the lungs of our earth. And, you know, Bolsonaro was in the party of family values. I don't know if they call it that down there, but whatever. My last story of the week, which is semi-related, but completely unimportant. 
I'm this is what this is my favorite story of the week. So you know me to do headlines every day, Tuesday through Friday, you know, all week long, Tuesday through Thursday, and then on Friday for the podcast, I'm doing a wrap up of both the most important and maybe some underreported and my favorite stories. I have to say, this one is my absolute favorite story. Did you see this? It it happened over last weekend. I'm not sure if you heard about it, but there was an incident at the RFK Jr. campaign event in New York that was reported hysterically by my not-so-favorite paper, the New York Post. But the headline, if you're watching this video report, the headline as you see here, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. press dinner explodes in a war of words and farting. <laughs> How, how, I mean, talk about eye catching. One of the best headlines that, that you could imagine. Apparently what happened is uh, when the topic of climate change was brought up, see, it's related to the topic above, some clearly insane former gossip colonist got all riled up about the climate hoax and started yelling, climate hoax, et cetera. And then a more sane guy, also a gossip columnist, attempted to shout down his acquaintance of three decades by calling him a miserable blob, effing insane, and insignificant, among other things. Clearly, there was some pre-existing beef there. No pun intended on the beef. Anyway, there was an impasse in the exchange, and the climate denier ripped a loud one while also yelling, I'm farting. <laughs> Oh my gosh. At least he didn't deny everything that's obvious. He's a climate change denier, but you know, I'm farting. Oh my God. Hilarity ensued, my friends. I just, I thought if you haven't seen this, you would enjoy it. Mother Jones did a report on it, calling it weaponized flatulence. I, I can't. It's too much. It's too much. RFK. I mean, he has a little sales empire that pushes so many vitamins and survivalist regimes that I'm surprised he maintained his quiet composure, as they reported, instead of recommending some patented RFK brand of Beano. <laughs> I'll tell you what, that is some funny stuff. I don't know how RFK Jr. is going to continue running his his campaign where he is a running as a Democrat, he has a very strong right-wing base because of his anti-vaccine stances. He has, you know, su support of people who are anti-corporatists. I mean, his anti-corporate influence stances resonate with me. I've been talking about getting money out of politics for a long time. Uh, it would be great to hear these words out of another Democrat's mouth. My beloved Dennis Kucinich is his campaign manager, but RFK has been, well, palling around with terrorists, as they say, like Steve Mannon, who says out loud that he wants to destroy democracy. They don't keep it a secret. They're not pretending anymore. And he is at the forefront of this disaster. So, you know, he wants white men with money to just run everything. And this makes me a little uneasy about this marriage. I mean, Bannon basically said he wants to run RFK Jr. as a Democrat to screw up Biden. Uh, 
how RFK thinks he's going to appeal to people who both don't believe in government, don't want to have a government, and people who want government, want to reform government, people who believe in climate change, people who believe climate change is a hoax that Democrats in the U.S. are coming up with so that the Democrats can become socialists and clamp down on power and force people to, you know, act more like adults than selfish babies. That is what they believe. Their climate change is a hoax. Even though it's happening globally, that hasn't penetrated somehow into their brains. We'll see. We'll put a pin in it. I hope you're enjoying this newscast. I'm Juliana Forlano. This is the Political Voices Network bringing you this podcast and news report on the YouTubes. And wherever you're watching me, please leave a comment. I am thrilled that you are here. Stay tuned for my next story where I question, why are people so hesitant to believe that white supremacists are dangerous? All that and more coming up. Stay tuned. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I wanted to dig deep into a story I read the other day in the Washington Post about the Senate panel that recently, just recently, found even more pre-January 6th intelligence failures by the FBI, the DHS. The DHS analysts were apparently hesitant in the wake of criticism from the handling of the George Floyd protest to do every, anything, but I had a sense that it went much, much deeper than that. And who better to have on the program to discuss it? But David Nywart, he's an investigative journalist. He has been following the radical right and their assault on American democracy for more years than I have been alive. So, and also people have not been believing him. Why are agencies so hesitant to believe what they're being told by journalists, by other researchers, by informants, by their own people, that the radical right is so dangerous. We're going to be talking to him about that and much more in our interview section. Stay tuned. David, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Juliana. So let's first jump in with the, uh, with the story that I led off with about the January 6th protests protests, insurrection, excuse me, and uh, why the DHS and FBI and all those other folks did not believe that this was going to be a serious matter. Well, the, the FBI, all, all the law enforcement was looking the other direction. They, they had all really bought into this whole uh, narrative concocted by right-wing extremists 
that the real enemy, the real violent people out there on the streets were Antifa and Black Lives Matter, right? And they were anticipating that for some reason, they thought that Antifa would come out to defend uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> well, boy, are they wrong about that. <laughs> this, is part of, this is part of Trump's calculus, too. They all anticipated that that what they would be encountering on um, the steps of the Capitol would be, you know, resistance from uh, violent leftists, uh, the, the, this violent leftist boogeyman that they had concocted out of mostly whole cloth and but you know there's any black people when they're talking about violent leftists i mean there's a lot of leftists who are white hippies they're you know they're not violent you know what are they talking about when they when they oh they're you know there are anti-fascists who are violent um you know engage in but you get need to understand they're a pretty tiny faction most anti-fascists aren't violent but there are some who you know uh, are into the whole black block scene and mm-hmm. are happy to engage in acts of vandalism and and you know I mean the the idea of Antifa is to go out and meet fascists in the street where they appear and and then counter them you know counter their violence with whatever they whatever they need to do to counter it mm-hmm. right to chase them out however they need to. Um, and this can include acts of violence, but for the most part, I think most anti-fascists will tell you that they prefer nonviolent means, but they're willing to use violence mostly in defense of themselves and of the minorities whose interests they are out defending. So, um, and, and not only was this part of Trump's calculus. <laughs> That's the phone saying that you're right. Bing! Correct. Yeah, no, this is, this is Don't a, worry about that. That's, that's no good. problem. We're just happy to have you on the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you were saying that, uh, you know, Trump so, was calculating that this. Well, yeah, of course, this was part of Trump's calculus that, you know, he was uh, anticipating that the mob that he was whipping up to be there on January 6th was going to be getting into it with, with Antifa and that this would give him uh, an excuse to invoke the Insurrection Act, which was key to his being able to stop the ballot counting and uh, conti- you know uh, invoke the, the fake electors and the whole scheme. That was, this is all part of how it all was intended to work. And the FBI and law enforcement in the country had been looking for a long time, had actually been dealing with Proud Boys and Oath Keepers directly as informants, not to, (laughs) the point of being informants for the FBI was not to um, inform on their own organizations, but rather its purpose was to inform on Antifa. So, you know, when afterwards, Tucker Carlson got a hold of of the reality that, Yes, a, a lot of these <laughs> Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were in fact acting as federal informants. They used that to say, oh, well, see, it was actually an FBI operation, right? But but in reality, the FBI was not interested in the activities of the Proud Boys because they assumed that, and they all saw each other as being on the same side. Wow. And, and so this was part of... This was why the FBI was totally unprepared for this because 
they had bought into so much of this narrative about the violent left. And this is not unusual for the FBI. They've been doing this for decades. Were they, were they, excuse me, were they prepared for like, if the violent left came out, were they prepared? Is there evidence that they were prepared to go and, and, you know, quell that kind of insurrection? Yeah, well, that was, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that was when, you know, the defense, the then acting defense secretary, uh, Miller, was supposed to release the troops as if the anti-fascists showed up. Uh, and when they didn't, then he held the National Guard back. Yeah, but murdering, it, trying to murder Nancy Pelosi, that's... Yeah, wow. and Mike Pence, too, for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no, they were... Um, uh, yeah. You know, they were they were looking the wrong, let's just say they were looking the wrong way and they were utterly unprepared. I'm still not convinced they are that they have figured this out. I mean, are they unprepared or are they on the side of neo-Nazis? I mean, well, we can, unprepared are, seems nice. Yeah, some of them are on their side. We definitely have had a significant amount of infiltration in, of extremists into the ranks of law enforcement as well as, uh, I mean, you can see that just from the Capitol Police officer who is actually being, uh, uh, you know, investigated and prosecuted for having actually assisted uh, the insurrectionists on January 6th. As How well as, um, yeah, there is one officer who's facing charges uh, related to um, his, basically his betrayal of his fellow officers. Um, but this is very frightening. This idea, I, I am, I'm of two minds here. One, uh, I would like to cover both of these. One is this merger of police and Nazism seems very dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Putting it mildly, what are we looking at here? I, I mean, you've been following this for longer than I've been alive. And yeah. you, I, I made note in the opening that people didn't believe you at the beginning and they're still yeah. not believing that this is really what's going on. So let's talk about, I want to talk about two things. One, why didn't they believe you and why do they still not? We kind of touched that a little bit. And two, where are we going here? How terrified uh, should we be? They didn't believe me for a couple of reasons. One is I'm a relatively obscure journalist working in the Northwest. I haven't ever risen to the uh, tops of the ranks of the Washington Post or the New York Times, partly because that's just not ever been my career path. Um, that's not what I'm interested in doing. And also because I think, um, partly because I worked for a number of years for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which uh, the right-wing extremists have very successfully uh, stigmatized and demonized over the last 10, 15 years as being, you know, supposedly biased, you know, and I'm quite proud of my work that I did for the SPLC because, you know, they had, they had higher standards than most news organizations mm. I have ever worked for in terms of being factually accurate. Um, so, uh, yeah, because, I mean, they're, they're at constant risk of being, uh, sued for what they publish. So yeah, you better, by God, better have your facts straight when you publish them at the SPLC and they know it. Um, and, so, you know, partly because, you know, they've been subjected to and have lost some cases where they weren't careful enough. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so yeah there's there's that um but yeah i mean some of it is just just this has evolved i mean i was a cops and courts reporter for a number of years for newspapers here in the northwest got to know cops i know them pretty well and then i worked with a lot of, of law enforcement uh when i was doing work related to hate crimes because this is where the rubber hits the road mm. with hate crimes is with with law enforcement or the lack thereof and um you know one th it, it was clearly a trend that i started seeing in the early 2000s was that uh, law enforcement officers a lot of them culturally didn't were were very um skeptical and disdainful of hate crimes laws mm -hmm. and a lot of them still refuse to enforce them still refuse to take them seriously is that because and, they protect groups that these officers otherwise maybe don't care that much about or what what's under that uh, yeah I, I think it's some it's just uh innate bigotry of within by the officers um you know there's a lot of officers are attracted to police work because of because they have authoritarian personalities, and it's obviously very appealing work to someone with an authoritarian personality. Um, Yikes! Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's I think a lot of what's gone wrong in the last twenty years. You know, uh, increasingly I started seeing uh, police departments, especially through this training regime that they call professionalization of police forces uh, what I saw happening through professionalization was uh, that uh, police officers started seeing themselves as separate from their communities um, not members not part of their communities and as a result you know I think they also saw themselves as being the controllers the people who were in charge of keeping everybody under control mm. and this has led to a lot of racist policing uh, that has exploded in the last four years uh, at, in the streets. And it's also led to a refusal to accept accountability. Uh, there's been you know, significant resistance to accountability within the ranks of police officers. And a lot of it is revolves around these police unions, which are extremely right-wing. Mm. Uh, and so, I mean, in places like Portland and Seattle, um, the police officers actually only occasionally actually live in those cities. They mostly live in suburbs and exurbs around those cities. And they all watch Fox News when they go home. So, you know, it creates yeah. this real cultural divide between these police officers and the people that they're supposed to be serving and protecting, as they say on the doors of their cars. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I've lived in Portland and you and I are currently in the Pacific Northwest. We're literally probably what a few blocks away, but due to technology, we are, <laughs> we are tech, we are, we are zooming this, this interview. Um, what, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I don't want well, to, our, our, our law enforcement here, here is actually pretty good. <laughs> well, that's great. I haven't seen the need for it at yeah, all. Yeah, really. no, they're good folks. <laughs> um, and this thing is that, that it's always a mix and you can't always tell. I mean, there are plenty of law enforcement officers who who do the work out of the best motives and try to do the best job that they can. And it's, so it's it's uh, you know I would not ever want to smear those people. I'm not a I'm not an A cab guy, you know, because <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, well, but um, 
In your new, you have a new book. I didn't, I don't want to bury the lead here, but your new book, The Age of Insurrection, mm-hmm. where you talk about the Pacific Northwest as playing a very important role, or I guess a very terrible role in the rise of these right-wing extremist groups. Can you talk to folk, give, give folks a little a bit of an idea of, of what's going on in this area that makes it so uh, ripe for that? Well, we've got a long history of right-wing extremism a lot of it out, just being out in the woods uh, in the Northwest. Uh, Why that, does the woods uh, make people right-wing extremists? It goes back to the post-Civil War period uh, yeah. when conf- ex-Confederates were moving to the Northwest. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, the Ku Klux Klan actually had a significant presence out here, particularly in Oregon. They actually ran or the state of Oregon's legislature uh, for a couple, three years. And uh, and you know controlled. They had elected mayors. The mayor of Portland was yeah. a, was a Klansman. And then in the 30s, uh, when the neo-fascist uh, Silver Shirts organization, run by William Dudley Pelly, uh, started cropping up, they also had a significant presence here in the Northwest. Washington was one of the only states. You know, Pelly ran for president in 1936, and Washington was one of the only states where he actually made it onto the ballot. And he got like 4% of the vote. So we've had this history for a long time, but but I would say the real major nexus um, that happened to the Northwest was in the uh, early to mid-1970s when um, the Aryan nations uh, moved up from Southern California uh, to, the, to the Idaho Panhandle and set up shop there. Were they priced out of San Diego? <laughs> I mean, why did they no, leave? No, they, they wanted to get away from all the brown people. Ah, the brown people, yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, no, they, they thought that the uh, California was turning into a cesspool, and so they wanted to go to a place that was all white. So they picked, they picked northern Idaho, which is a pretty white place. <laughs> so, pretty white place. Um, and I was working, and that's how I got started in all this, was that I was the... <laughs> editor of the little daily up in Sandpoint back in 1978, 79. And, uh, you know, they had just moved in in like 76, 77 down in Hayden Lake area. And I saw, you know, we started seeing a pretty big influx of uh, right-wing extremists into the area around it because that was their whole purpose of moving there. They wanted to create an all-white homeland based, you know, centered around the Idaho panhandle, but really the inland Northwest, they called it, uh, they called their campaign the Northwest Imperative. uh, And they tried, you know, they actively recruited people to move to the region to uh, help them set up shop. And, And this has never gone away. You know, the Aryan nations got put out of business in 2000. Um, finally, after, you know, nearly 30 years of of, uh, being a a profoundly toxic influence in the region and bringing all kinds of criminality and toxic influences. But um, that toxic influence never went away. And so now we're seeing in Idaho, I mean, the state of Idaho is being gradually taken over by far-right extremists who are actually moving there in large numbers from Southern California and places like that. They're being recruited to move there, be told to get out of that cesspool in California and come to where the conservatives are running the show. 
And, uh, you know, um, a lot of these people are actually explicit white nationalists and neo-Nazis. Um, they have direct connections to um, the, the major political players in the state, particularly um, the Kootenai County uh, Republican Central Committee, Committee and the Idaho Freedom Foundation. Both have are just riddled throughout with white nationalists and all kinds of extremists. So on the uh, on the East Coast, where I normally am, where we normally talk about you know politics, somehow seems centered there for national politics at least. Do you feel that Idaho and this movement is getting more attention? Enough attention? It seems no. quite dangerous to have them all together having meetings, etc. Yeah, I don't think I think everyone underestimates uh, how strong the uh, extremist influx is in the state and how to what extent they actually have uh, taken control of the leather levers of the state. I mean, it's easy to ignore because Idaho is not a high population state. Um, and, uh, you know, this is generally kind of on the on the back burner list of interest as, you know, uh, as news as a news judgment matter. Sure. Uh, you know, um, we're well, I mean, they're all over the place. We've got Georgia, Florida. Yeah, we've we're seeing similar dynamic taking place in places like Missouri, uh, Texas, and Florida, where the the, the I mean, we well, what was yeah, it? Rick Scott, Rick Scott right. just was uh, last month was telling uh, so talk, communists shouldn't even come to our state, you know, and you know what's a communist? Please, you know, this is, <laughs> how are, many are communists you, do we have? I mean, you know, yeah. anyway. I, yeah, I, yeah. Well, a lot of this is descended from the John Burke Society. I mean, and they still have an incredibly powerful influence in all this. So you, it seems that certain uh, financial forces are benefiting from the rise of hmm. white nationalism, neo fascism, and the other, you know, we could name the different. Mm -hmm the different branches of this. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. At, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the essence of all this is a profoundly anti-democratic campaign. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to hollow out democracy uh, from the ground up. They're attacking these school boards and these uh, library boards and these city councils and county commissions and state legislatures, you know, by sending Proud Boys out to uh, berate and threaten them. Uh, and they're also using the power that they do have within these legislatures to pass, you know, anti-abortion laws, anti-CRT uh, laws, anti-LGBTQ laws, mm -hmm. uh, all of them aimed at, and they're accompanied by really explicit expressions of eliminationism, where we want to eliminate leftism, we want to eliminate transgenderism, uh, you know, we're going... And, and, you know, and this is people like Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott saying this stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the leftism yeah. and abortion are one, one in the same for them, even though like, I think it's 78% of all of Americans want yeah. abortion. Yeah, no, they, they don't care what people want. They, what they want is what, what they're doing is trying to create uh, as much chaos within the system and and under like I say, uh, really undermine basic de democratic institutions, take away people's rights, 
and create this turmoil to the point that people don't believe in democracy anymore. I mean, this is the whole purpose. Sure. And, and there are all of these, these billionaires, guys like Peter Thiel, who are explicitly hostile to democracy because they believe, you know, Thiel says that he doesn't believe um, that democracy is compatible with freedom. <laughs> which is pretty his own personal freedom pretty yeah well and that's <laughs> his that's right that's his definition of freedom is the ability to control everybody else that's his that's the freedom and do whatever he wants even if it's that's, like that's or correct yeah well right. it's like for racists their definition of freedom is uh the ability to take away other people's civil rights uh, and the uh, definition of freedom for gun owners is the ability to uh, fire off any round that they want at anybody they want, you know. Um, so, you know, that's when you hear them go, freedom, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. the freedom they're talking about. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. <laughs> oh my God, it's like... Now that I have a child, you see that children, you know, when they want freedom, they want, they just, I don't know. I see, I see these guys, mostly guys as, and maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me on how many women are part of this movement, I guess, but they just, they're mad at their moms for not letting them do whatever they want. And they're taking that with them for the rest of their lives. <laughs> you know, they're just, yeah, they're just little beasts. I, I think that actually the real dynamic at work here is authoritarianism and authoritarian personalities. Um, I mean, certainly we're seeing all of this play out. You know, the the three core behavioral and attitudinal uh, clusters of um, authoritarian personalities are first authoritarian submission, which is, you know, submission to the rule of the great glorious leader and, uh, uh, you know, strict adherence to whatever it is he says. Um, second is authoritarian aggression, which is directed against anyone who fails to submit. And then finally is, is their conventionalism, which is what, uh, you know, this belief that they represent the real America, that they're, uh, that, that, you know, we're, we're actually standing up for the silent, the will of the silent majority sort of stuff. And this sort of stuff, you know, and of course it produces, those three clusters produce a whole array, a long list of of traits, including, you know, um, a sort of susceptibility to conspiracism uh, and, you know, willingness of high tolerance for, if not actual participation in uh, acts of bigotry and bigot bigoted attitude. On the financial, the bigoted attitude on the financial front, on the sort of corporate 
I mean, I, I feel like when corporations start suffering from this, then we'll see maybe some movement. But right now, corporations are benefiting. They can keep wages suppressed. Nobody wants to do a higher minimum, you know, have a yeah. have a have any kind of wage caps. God forbid, then you're a real commie, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Stock buybacks, forget, you know, all, they're, they're benefiting from yeah. to suppress certain groups of yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, no, this and that's what that's how authoritarianism works. You know, I mean, authoritarian leaders, we usually think about authoritarianism in terms of the leaders. Right. And so but authoritarian leaders are actually have very distinctly different personalities than authoritarian followers. Uh, you know, authoritarian followers want to follow. They want somebody to they, they basically want to um, uh, farm out their thinking to whatever it is that the leader says. Uh, and they don't want to have to think, they don't want to have to deal with the vagaries of democracy, the challenges of democracy. They want, you know, they want that their mighty leader to use his sword to cut the Gordian, Gordian knot, as it were, with one blow. Mm. And, and that's how they see the world. You know, they, I, I they, think the action for action's sake is, is a really big thing for them. Our, our, I've been, ta I've been talking about this a little bit on the show and a little bit privately with friends, but it seems that our religious organizations, many religious organizations, I was brought up Catholic, mm -hmm. that one specifically I'm thinking of, but I know there are others that, that don't encourage free thinking. They just right. encourage following. So we are steeped right. in religion from the day we are born that just says, don't worry about it. I've got this. I'm the priest. I'm the leader. You just do what I say and you'll get into heaven. No big deal. You know that we're seeped in, in being trained to follow the leader. Yeah. And then you've got Fox news out there sort of uh, demagoguing and it's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it happens on, on that large of a scale and it's not just demagoguing. They're, they're also, doing a tremendous amount of fear mongering, mm -hmm. which is actually how you're able to induce an authoritarian response in an audience. You can actually increase the levels of authoritarianism that are out there. I mean, authoritarianism is a sort of natural part of every society. Generally speaking, there's, you know, 15 to 20% of most populations have are, are authoritarian personalities, but, um, but you can actually expand that by fear mongering because you, the more people get this drumbeat of fear, you know, we're got to worry about is, is after nine 11 is when of course it really took off. Got to worry about those Muslim terrorists. Then it was got to worry about those uh, evil immigrants coming over the border. And, and, and then in the last, you know, five, six years is, Oh, got to worry about evil Antifa and then got to worry about CRT. And now it's, now it's the groomers, you know, they, they, right. they come up with whatever it is uh, that works to generate fear as fearful response. So um, yeah, that's key to the dynamic. A, a couple of other questions before we get to how do we fight them, uh, hmm. which will, will be what we, what we end on. Um, is this population growing? Is the media coverage of what's going on, not January 6th, because that was obviously a huge deal for our country, but is it outsizing it to make viewers more afraid than they should be? Or should we be really 
terrified at what, or, you know, I don't want to cause people to be, uh, you know, afraid. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly what we just you talked about. But... Term hungering. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you. Give me some, just a reality check because right. it's hard to get yeah, that no, from watching uh, CNN or MSNBC or any of them. I think it expanded significantly uh, during between about 2012 and 2020. Um, I think it has largely stopped growing, uh, but it nonetheless- Why do you think that is? Um, I think actually January 6th had a lot to do with waking people up and making them realize that this was going down a bad path. Um, and, uh, so you know, I, 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 I'm really <laughs> encouraged by, by, I was very much encouraged by the election results, both in 2020 and in uh, 2022. Uh, which really indicated to me that Americans do take seriously these threats to their democracy. And I, it, it drives me crazy that Democrats aren't smart enough to lean into that shit. But, you know, I know, that's a whole nother you know, show. That is, that is a whole nother show. We won't, and, and we can certainly talk about how we resist it. But yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with... Um, People sort of, you know, wanting to believe that things are going to, we, we can go, oh, it's actually still normal. We'll just brush this back into the corner and it'll go away. And I hate to tell them that it ain't going away until we stand up to it and play hardball and drive them deliberately back to the margins where they belong. Uh, I mean, we'll never get rid of people like this altogether. And why would we want it? That's not how, that's not how an open society works. But we definitely don't want to give them as uh, allow them as much control and influence as they have because society cannot work if and when they're in charge, because then it's just chaos. Then it's just authoritarianism, uh, democracy ends. And uh, yes, I don't think anybody's going to like the results of that. So, um, yeah. So, you know, there's For average uh, Joe or Jane or anyone in between uh, do um, to help, you know, just in their everyday life. Are there things people can do? Uh, yeah, a couple things. One is uh, don't just tolerate this stuff. When you start hearing people spouting conspiracism and, uh, you know, uh, let's go Brandon stuff and stuff like that, call them out. Don't don't just be silent in the face of this. Um, people need to hear back. They need there needs to be deliberate pushback. I mean, you don't have to get bellicose and violent like they do, but uh, you know these guys need to hear that what they're doing and what they're saying and what they what they are uh, participating in is wrong and you know bad for the country, bad for America. Uh, it's, it's incredibly harmful and it's bad for everybody that, you know, uh, we all have family members who are going to be vulnerable to these kinds of waves of authoritarianism. And, and if we love those family members, you know, I have LGBTQ com, uh, folks in my family um, and I'm very deeply concerned about what's going to happen to them in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm fighting on their behalf. I'm fighting on on behalf of, you know, of journalism, because <laughs> yeah. if, 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 if we don't have a democracy, we ain't doing journalism, we're doing propaganda, folks, right. and that's what we'll be doing. Um, and 
uh, you know, there's there's a whole <laughs> there's a really long list of reasons to stand up. Uh, but I also think, um, yeah, we need to we need to start thinking about ways we reform these things. Don't participate in uh, conspiracist forums. Don't give. Don't let conspiracist media get a toehold uh, on our discourse or in our discourse. Because if we do, uh, we won't have any discourse. I mean, it just becomes it becomes chaos, nonsensical chaos that uh, that again becomes toxic. So, um, and then finally, finally, I think you just need to, uh, you know, organize your friends and family and and get out and vote and get everybody to vote and and right. make, and you know and understand and and spread the awareness that this is. This is actually a, a, a serious assault on democracy. It's from both from without and from within. Uh, and there are forces arrayed against our democracy that want to destroy it and want to make it so that we are we no longer have self-rule in this country. We no longer have the freedom that we've come to expect as a as a, a byproduct of democracy. And um you know, if you're, if you love those things and if you love America, you'll fight. I mean, quit and quit accommodating these guys, you know, play hardball. It, was, it drives me crazy when, when, you know, Dick Durbin wants, does everything he can to accommodate these guys in the Senate and, you know, and, and, and politicians make all these accommodations for these extremists. And it's like, no, no, you, you can't do that because it just convinces them, A, that you're weak and B, that what they're doing is right and that they have a chance to, to succeed. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, I could you, talk you play hardball with them. Don't let them get it. Don't give an inch on this stuff. And I could talk, I could talk to you all day about this, especially because the people who are hardline on the left, the progressives or whoever, they don't like Biden. So they're undercutting Biden, right? Yeah, they're course. undermining yeah. Biden. And oh, it's a disaster. And Biden is more of a glad handler. I mean, he has been a little stronger in certain areas than I expected him to be. But he's a like, let's reach across the aisle and come to a peace kind of guy, which I guess was effective in politics and necessary up to a certain point. But in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> right. And now it's time to, you know, put our big... A, he, you know, he is doing a lot of things that, uh, that I think are definitely steps forward for de Democrats. You know, he's not he's not uh, uh, allowing us to pursue this uh, economics of austerity that we saw in the '90s and aughts, um, and he's not um, he's not uh, you know he he's I mean he's he made these speeches saying that he calling it, it's like semi-fascism. At least he's calling it out. And a lot of politicians aren't. And so, you know, I, I think Joe gets it, but he's he still thinks that there are ways that they can accommodate these guys. So uh, I wish that they would give that that tendency up. But at the same time, yeah, uh, I um, there's nothing worse than the sort of uh, the preening self-righteousness of a lot of leftists when it comes to the purity of their causes yeah. and uh, because it's it's really toxic and and really undermines the larger effort 
So we're speaking with David Nywert, investigative and award-winning journalist, author of many, many books, almost all of which I have read. <laughs> the only one I didn't finish was Red Pill, Blue Pill, the last chapter, I think because a new book had come out by the time. Anyway, in uh, the new book is The Age of Insurrection. We could, you know, there's more of this insurrection and white nationalism is a very hard topic to talk about. And I appreciate you bringing insight, humor, humanity. You know, you make it, um, you make it, easy to read about it without wanting to, you know, jump off a bridge at the end. So <laughs> that's, that's great to hear. You know, I write this stuff down and I just keep my fingers crossed and hope that it actually has an effect. And the whole purpose of the book, obviously, was to try to give people a toolkit for dealing with this assault on our democracy. And the first steps in the toolkit are, you know, the acquisition of knowledge of what they're about and how they operate and what their, their strategies and tactics are. And that's really kind of what the the book is about. It's about what we are going to be facing going forward after January 6th into the future and, you know, how we can, you know, I, I, I don't deal with it, how we can, you know, the, our own tactics and strategies as much because, frankly, that's a whole nother book. Uh, well, this, one, this one got to 450 <laughs> pages as it is, the right. 980 endnotes. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. We want to make sure it's. it's yeah. I know you check you check your sources. Final yeah. question that I wanted to ask you before, but to me, it's really important. Um, it seems like these white nationalists are literally doing the work that certain foreign uh, agents mm -hmm. named Vladimir would be just as happy to do himself. Have you seen any connection between, um, you know, those two, I guess, groups? Those two elements? Yeah. Uh, well, certainly in the period between, say, 2014 and 2016, we saw a lot of um, Russian activity involved in, in promoting these guys. Um and we know that we know that there are still connections between particularly some of the real far-right extremists, uh, the real neo-Nazi types, and elements in Russia. Um, but it's um, hasn't been as obvious the last couple three years, and uh, you know I can't point to as many um, tendencies. But it, yeah, this I mean this is a global far-right takeover attempt and it's not just in the united states and i discussed this in the in my opening uh in my preface that um you know we, we're seeing uh, all kinds of the ascension of right-wing extremism throughout europe uh we're seeing autocratic states displace democracies there like in turkey and in hungary um we are, and, you know, and, and increasingly, you know, the, like the Italian prime minister is, yeah. uh, is a, a proto-fascist. Um, the far right party recently took over in Sweden. Um, you know, so there, there are a lot of, and of course you have authoritarian states in Myanmar and the Philippines and, and elsewhere. Uh, and, and let's not forget India where, uh, there is, you know, Modi is clearly ruling as an autocratic authoritarian and behaving in ways that are 
um, you know, I think really toxic to the democracy there. So, and, and you know, these guys all have uh, connections with, with Putin. So, uh, yeah, there is, they, they are connected um, and they are very active. Uh, and once again, it's it's enough to fill an entire book. And right. I just said, I couldn't do that book. I needed to do the book that focused on, because what Putin's been doing here is, you know, he's he's not... He's not going about actually sort of introducing new elements, although there has been some of that. We have seen, seen some neo-Nazi terrorist gangs that clearly have uh, Russian origins, uh, particularly Adam Waffen SS mm-hmm. uh, and, and the base, uh, or a couple of them that have powerful Russian connections. Uh, but we're what we're more seeing is what he's actually done is that he's taken existing fault lines that have existed within the American body politic for over a century, and he's white, he's cracking them open and he's widening them and he's creating these huge gaps between within the American public so that we don't trust each other anymore. We don't trust our information sources. We have, we're having epistemic crisis because we can't tell what's true and what's not. um, Thanks to the pollution of the information space. And these things are all, uh, you know, really, again, incredibly toxic to democracy. They have really powerful destructive effects. And those, these are all things that we need to be fighting. Absolutely. Dave and I were, thank you for the fight that you've been doing for over 50 years. My entire, you know, (laughs) from before I was living, I appreciate everything that you have been, have been doing. Follow David on Twitter. David, you're still on Twitter, right? I mean, uh, where are we going? I am still on Twitter, although I'm very seriously contemplating the other sites because yeah, Elon Musk is another one of these billionaires who's, who is participating in these, uh, the you know he clearly yeah, yeah. has a lot of hostility to democratic institutions so no. ah well for now on twitter i'm sure if you're going to leave twitter you'll put it on twitter where you're going to go <laughs> yeah 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 it's a, it's a fact um yeah <laughs> thanks so much i, I haven't decided have... what to do yet but. thanks for your um for giving us all this time i know i asked you for about 20 minutes and you've given us more than 40 so thank you so much for being My on pleasure. here it's always a pleasure to talk with you hey always Let's go get coffee. We're going to get coffee. All right. We'll see you, uh, the audience, a little bit later. You're watching the Giuliano Forlano Show. Thanks so much. You're watching the Political Voices Network. I didn't want to stop the interview to say subscribe or share this with your friends. So I'll just say it now. Subscribe, share this with your friends, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to do some deep dives. I like doing deep dives. If there are people you want me to interview, put them in the comments, wherever you're watching, listening, et cetera, et cetera, to this, and I will see if I can get them on and we can chat. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. See you next time. Thank you so much for joining me here on the inaugural episode of the Juliana Forlano Show with the Political Voices Network. I appreciate you being here. I hope you loved it. I look forward to your comments and I'll see you next week.